This morning we're going to continue our series, Did God Really Say? And I was not joking when I said this is a very, very difficult sermon to preach. Uh, honestly, it's a difficult sermon to hear. Uh, really, I should have saved it for you Sunday when I was going to have Jordan preach it. You could have done a much better job, I think. But um, as we're preparing for a, a series on what did God really say, or did God really say, you, you find yourself asking some really hard questions. And so we've had to tackle things like, did God really say that life begins at conception, or that there's only two genders? Did God really say that people are, are wicked or evil or sinful? We have to ask ourselves this question, does God really say that there is a literal hell? I'm going to be honest, this is a tough, tough one to bear. Every once in a while, a pastor just needs to, to lay his heart on his sleeve a little bit. And, and when I say I come with a burden this morning, there are burdens that, that I'll share and burdens that I won't. But one thing I'll say was a burden was preparing this message. It's really, really, really tough. And to be honest with you, I think it's going to be a little tough to listen to, especially at the beginning. But the reason why this is a, such an important message, and, and I'll speak to those of you who did not dismiss to Children's Church this morning, particularly some of our youth scattered around the sanctuary, this is so important to understand. Did God really say this or not? We have a lot of doubts about things. We have a lot of questions about things. And, and hell is one of those issues that if I could wish away from Christianity, I would wish it away. I don't like the doctrine of hell at all. Is that okay for a pastor to tell you that? Is that okay to tell you that this is, this is something that I don't enjoy in the least bit? I'm not alone in that. I've, I've got a few quotes of why I think it's so difficult to, to ask this question. Did God really say that people go to hell? We have similar questions to people throughout history. For instance, there's a, a British philosopher. He's an atheist uh, from uh, the, the 1900s. He lived in the mid-1900s. His name was Bertrand Russell. And as he's examining the Christian faith, uh, he comes to, to this realization. This, this is his conclusion. There's one serious defect in my mind in Christ's moral character. So you can see he's trying to discredit the morality of Christ and the Christian faith. And that is that he believed in hell. He goes on to say in another place, a, this, hell is a doctrine that puts cruelty in the world and gave the world generations of cruel torture. This is his assessment of Christianity. This idea of hell is so wicked and horrible that he's ready to throw the whole faith out. Another religious philosopher, not a Christian philosopher, but a religious philosopher named John Hick calls hell a grim fantasy and morally revolting. He also added that it is a serious perversion of the Christian gospel. I, I would argue that that's wrong, but you can see where his, his point of view is coming from. Hell is so wicked and evil and grim. How could you believe in a faith that teaches on hell? I, I share this morning that I think many of you have a similar thought, even if you disagree with his conclusion. Another, this man self-described evangelical Christian. I don't believe he is an evangelical Christian, but he describes himself in that way, a man named Clark Pinnock. He says, how can one imagine for a moment that the God who gave his son to die for sinners because of his great love for them would install a torture chamber somewhere in his new creation in order to subject those who reject him to everlasting pain? questions that come up time and time again. Why would a loving God do that? 
Several years ago, a a pastor, Rob Bell, wrote a book called Love Wins. I don't know if you're familiar with that book or not. Uh, It's not worth the read unless you just want to know uh, differing points of view. I guess then it would be, but it does a horrible job addressing things in Scripture, some of which we'll talk about this morning. But the entire book of Love Wins was premised on this fact. If God desires your salvation, God gets what he wants, and everyone is saved and there is no hell. This is what he writes. A loving Heavenly Father who will go to extraordinary lengths to have a relationship with them would in the blink of an eye become a cruel, mean, vicious tormentor who would endure, ensure that they had no escape from an endless future of agony. If your God is loving one second and cruel the next, if your God would punish people for all eternity for sins committed for a few short years, no amount of clever marketing or compelling language or good music or great coffee will be able to disguise that one true, glaring, untenable, unacceptable, awful reality. I have to say, of of all these men that I I disagree with, but I understand where they're coming from, the last quote I'll share with you is a man I I agree with wholeheartedly. I think C.S. Lewis put it best as a, a Christian, a faithful Christian apologist and author who says, there is no doctrine which I would willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. I hate the idea of hell. It burdens me to even have to to answer this question because I have some of these same things. If God loves us so much, why would he? And and I I share this message because I'm quite positive. I'm not alone in thinking, how could a loving God do this? Why would a loving God do this? So this morning, we need to ask ourselves a question. Does a loving God really say that people go to hell? And so we're going to read through Scripture and see what the Bible really says. We're going to start in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be several places this morning. But in Matthew chapter 25, there's a clear picture of what happens when our life is done, when our life is complete and it's over. And Jesus gives a picture of what entering into eternity looks like. So read with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31 and going through verse 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And He'll place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we come see you as stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. They will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he'll answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is a picture we have painted of the end of our lives when we're face to face with God. Where we have to give an account to our actions and what we've said and what we've done. We see this picture of separation. Those on the right and those on the left. Those who have have put their faith and trust and followed and done what Christ has called them to do and those who have rejected it. And there are words all throughout this passage about eternal punishment, about pain and separation. This very real picture of the nature of what eternal life is like apart from God. One thing I'm very aware of in this passage, by the way, and I picked it intentionally, is if you kind of glance back over, count how many times the word hell is used. That, that four-letter word, H-E-L-L, that specific word is used in that passage. You want to do a quick, brief count? Hold up a fist to show me how many times you count, because that's how many you counted the word in there, okay? You, you don't see that word in there, right? This is often levied against the idea of hell, that, that for some reason people say the Bible doesn't talk about hell nearly as much as you think it does. The truth is, if you have a King James Version of Scripture, the word English word hell is used 54 times. Seems like a lot. In the translation that I use, I use the English Standard Version. Hell is used a mere 14 times. That English word hell is used only 14 times. As we read the Bible, references to hell and the nature of eternity without God number over 160 times throughout Scripture. And at least 70 of those, at least 70 of those references are Jesus' words himself. Remember that meek and mild Jesus? <laughs> the one in the New Testament that we want to embrace as warm and fuzzy? He spoke over 70 times about an eternal punishment apart from God. Did God really say that people go to hell? The sad reality that we have to face today is yes, there is a reality of hell. And by the way, if that doesn't haunt you and burden you, we don't have a clear understanding of what hell is. As we read throughout the Bible, hell is undeniable in Scripture. It's there. Hell is a literal, physical place. It is separation from God. It's torture and it's punishment it's everlasting and eternal and we read about it over and over and over and over again just a few references to show you that i'm not making this up in matthew chapter 10 verse 28 it says don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell jesus's words in matthew chapter 10 in second thessalonians 1 9 Paul writes, they'll suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Notice the word hell in English is not used there, but the description is undeniable. It is eternal destruction and punishment away from the presence of the Lord. 
towards the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Again, the word hell may not be in there, but there's a clear picture of what separation from God is. In case we're wondering if it's just in the New Testament, it is not. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, we read of the same exact concept. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. That's a Hebrew euphemism for those who have died before us. They sleep in the dust of the earth. They shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The word hell is not always used as hell. In Hebrew, the word is often used sheol. The word sheol doesn't have to mean hell, but it often references the place that those who are separated from God go. Sometimes it simply means death. Jonah was said to go to sheol when he was in the belly of the large fish, but there are other places that sheol is a clear reference to an eternal separation from God, such as Psalm chapter 49, verse 15. God will ransom my soul my soul, my eternal being from the power of Sheol and he will receive me. Selah, or amen. God all throughout scripture paints a picture that is undeniable about the reality of a place called hell. And I, I hope, not because I like to do this, but I hope that that makes you uncomfortable because that's the intention of the doctrine of hell. To make us go, this is real. This isn't fantasy. This isn't downplayed. This is all throughout Scripture. From, from the Old Testament to the words of Jesus to the writings of Paul to the end in Revelation, there is an undeniable, true place, literal, eternal state of separation from God. I, I want to tell you, if that makes you uncomfortable, it's because God never intended you and I to have to experience hell. He did not create us with hell in mind. We, we actually read that earlier. We're going to reread it in just a second, that hell was not created for people. Let's be very clear about this. God's intention in creation was not that anyone would go to hell. He created hell for, for punishment of evil and wickedness. And originally, that did not include you and I before Adam and Eve sinned. That did not include humanity in their perfection, in their perfect state created by God. Instead, hell was meant for someone else. You might have missed it as we read in Matthew 25, but verse 41 tells us who hell was originally created for. It says, Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. This is an important realization to know as we think about the nature of hell. God does not desire any person to go there. He did not create hell as a place for you and I to have to spend eternity. It's not his desire and his want. As a matter of fact, he wants so badly for us to avoid that that he writes all throughout the Bible, I, I want something better. I don't want you to have to endure this. You know why the Bible mentions eternal punishment so much? Because God has a heart that you would know him and escape it. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us exactly that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he tells us we need to be praying for all people, for our leaders, for our government authorities, all those who, who are over us. We need to be praying for them. And even the evil and wicked ones, we need to be praying for. Why? 
But Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 4, it's God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus talks so much about hell and the reality of hell because he doesn't want anyone to mistakenly think that he wants them there. It's a warning flag. It's him jumping up and down and saying, don't do that. There's been very few times that, uh, um, that we've had an experience that really kind of shook us as parents, and maybe you've had a few more than we have, but um, j- just once or twice playing out in our front yard. We don't have a real busy street. Um, our kids will be playing and throwing balls out, and, and a, a ball will go into the road, and normally we're quick to go, okay, kids, especially when they're little, we'll go get the ball. You just wait here. And there's been one or two times where you can see in their eye, they start taking off towards the road, and you can see the car coming. And what do you do when you see your child heading towards uh, traffic, unaware of what's going on, and seeing the car coming? I know what you do. You do the same thing you do with hell. Uh, Guys, might want to be careful with that. There's a car that might be coming, right? You might get hit, but it won't last forever, right? You You might get hurt, but dust yourself off. It's not that bad. What do you do? You yell, and you scream, and you get the child's attention. Don't go into the road. There's been times I've had to yell at my children for protection that's caused them fear and caused them to cry. Dad, why did you yell? Because of danger, right? All throughout Scripture, there's all these warnings. It's like God is screaming at us. The car is coming. The road is there. The warnings are right in front of you. My desire is not that you go there. I did not create hell for you to live in. Did God really say there was a hell? Yes, so that we can know we don't have to be there. There's one sense that God actually does not send anyone to hell. It's this idea and this this truth that we make decisions about ourselves. Hell is the ultimate place of God saying, if you really don't want to spend eternity with me, you don't have to. It's like God giving us over. And we hear that over and over in Scripture. God gives them over. I praise God that he is patient and he is not quick to anger. He's not quick to give us over. In one sense, God doesn't send anyone to hell. We we choose to live our lives according to our will and our ways. But in another real sense, God's holiness demands that those who are, are separated from him and in their sin have to spend eternity to hell. In that sense, God is required by his own nature to have a place to punish sin. A hard truth, but maybe helps us understand hell better, is that hell displays God's holiness. Hell displays God's holiness. God tells us about hell to communicate the magnitude of his perfection and his holiness. But one thing that gets thrown at me as a a pastor, and maybe you as a Christian from time to time, but I hear over and over and over again, why is hell eternal? Couldn't it be short-lived? I mean, we live how many short years on this earth? In the scheme of eternity, it is like, it's like a vapor, Scripture says. It's so short. Why are our temporal, in-the-moment sins punished for all of eternity? Have you ever had that question before? Have you struggled with that one before? Why is hell eternal? It's because we don't view sin as eternal. We view sin as temporal. But sin is the breaking of God's perfect created order. 
Have you ever noticed that when perfection is broken, you can never make it complete again? For instance, if, if you are a baseball player, and you go up to bat, your first at bat of the season, you knock a single, you're batting a thousand. Maybe you get on a hot streak, and your first 15 plate appearances, you either get on base or, or with a walk, or you get a base hit, and you're batting a thousand, 15, maybe even you get hot and get 20. I think it was, was it Mickey Mantle who had 52 in a row, 52 games in a row of getting hits. You get this idea that you can get on a hot streak and be doing really well, and then all of a sudden, you strike out once, right? Just once. Maybe you go on another hot streak and get 15 more in a row, but guess what? It doesn't matter how hot you get. You're not batting 1,000 ever again that season. One mistake has cost your perfect record. A few years ago, if you're a sports fan, a few years ago, Kentucky experienced this as we were 38-0. I wore my Kentucky today. We had a rare win yesterday. 38-0 in the final four, right? We're, we're supposed to win everything, and guess what? That whole season, 38 great wins, one loss towards the end ruined it all. If you break a lamp, kids, you've broken that lamp in your parents' living room or the proverbial lamp, something went wrong, and you get the glue out and you put all the pieces together, you can put it back together, but you still have the cracks and the flaws. Perfection has been lost. You understand that our sin is not temporal? Breaking perfection is eternal. It, it lasts forever. We can do nothing to correct our sin. Why is sin eternal? Or why, why is hell eternal? Because sin is eternal. The only way we can be in God's presence is if we are in his holy, perfect state, how he created us to be. And when we break that perfection, we eternally change that relationship. Hell displays God's holiness to us, just how perfect we don't understand the nature of hell because we don't understand the nature of our own sin. Hell's not fair to us because we don't understand the gravity of our own wrongdoings. I think more accurately, we don't want to understand the nature of hell because then we have to come to grips with the true nature of our own personal sin. You know why I hate hell? Reminds me that I deserve to be there. When we understand what God is trying to tell us, we, we should be convicted to the bone. God, my sin broke that covenant with you. And so that's why we read again this nature and this pain of what our sin does to a holy God. Read again with me, Matthew 25, 41 through 46. He'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now listen what sends these people to hell. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And the people ask the same question you and I ask. And they'll answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? What the people are crying out is, God, did I really do something that bad? Do I really deserve what you're sending me to? Didn't I do some good things? 
Didn't I minister to some people? Didn't I do something right? But Jesus answers, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. In other words, your own works aren't good enough if you're not doing it for Christ. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's this reality that our sin weighs so heavily on what we do and how we act separates us from God in such a way that we are deserving of an eternal punishment. Perfection is broken. I'm so thankful that God's desire is not to leave us broken. I said something earlier that is is very true. You and I can never fix perfection. We can never put the pieces back together. We can never get back to a perfect batting average. We can never uh, get our grade to be back to 100. We can never uh, put the lamp and glue it perfectly back together. But an eternal God can do eternal things. And I am so thankful that his desire is not to see us stay in brokenness. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any perish, but all should reach repentance. When we think about the doctrine of hell, we think about the salvation of God. His will and desire is that no one would be there and no one would go there. As we think about the nature of who God is, we understand he is just and he must punish sin, but he is gracious and willing to forgive. We're so quick to dismiss hell as an unloving and evil place. But are we really then trying to make ourselves more gracious than God? This morning, I want to tell you, not only does the Bible say that people go to hell, the Bible and the message of Scripture is a message that says there's a warning and something better. God created you for something different. All throughout the Old and New Testament, there's a promise of a coming Messiah fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us if we trust Jesus in two ways, as Savior and as Lord, that we are restored to that perfect right relationship in a way that you and I cannot restore ourselves. We trust Jesus as Savior. Forgive my sins. Forgive where I've broken things. I need your forgiveness, and I need you to put me back together because I can't do it myself. And we trust him as Lord. God, your will for my life is better than my will for my life. I'm going to do what you call me to do because you lead me to a path of righteousness. So this morning, if if you're wrestling with this concept, is hell a real place? I tell you all throughout Scripture, not only is it clearly there, but it is hated by God as much as it is hated by you. His desire is not that you would be there, but that you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to forgive your sins and lead you from this point forward. Will you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful for hard doctrines. I'm so thankful for telling us things that we don't want to know, but that we need to know. Father, I'm not thankful for a place called hell, but I'm thankful for a God who is holy and just and punishes sin. Lord, as I wrestle with hell this morning, I have to wrestle with my own sinful heart. And Lord, I come before you and I ask and I beg and I plead for your forgiveness. Lord, I thank you that you did not leave me broken, but that you called me through salvation in Jesus Christ into eternal life with you.
Lord, I pray this morning that each of us would examine our own hearts and ask, God, do I know you as my personal Savior and Lord? Do I understand your love is so great that you want to spend eternity how you created us to be? Lord, let us submit to you as Savior and Lord today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.